Uh, our scripture reading this morning is from Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way a spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper. This or that, or that both alike will be good. This is God's word. Go ahead and be seated, but keep your Bibles open to Ecclesiastes 11. According to uh, marketing professionals, one of the simplest ways a company can increase their sales is by offering a solid guarantee with their product or their service. One professional writes that one of the reasons people don't buy from you is the perceived risk they believe they're taking in purchasing your product or service. These risks include making the wrong decision, losing money, not receiving what they paid for, not being satisfied, and then not being able to recoup their investment. So this professional suggests one strategy to overcome these risks is to offer a rock-solid guarantee that will make their purchase risk-free, or at least decrease the risk as much as possible. As consumers, we like those kinds of words, don't we? You know, We like guarantees. We like doing things that are quote, risk-free. We want control and predictability. That's what we're comfortable with, whether we're purchasing a toaster or choosing a college or trying to get pregnant or selecting a course of medical treatment for something. But as the book of Ecclesiastes has reminded us over and over again, life is anything but controllable and predictable. It is full of uncertainties. Uh, even disappointments, especially if we're looking for lasting gain and significance under the sun, in this world, as the preacher describes it, under the sun. So in the world that we can see and touch and experience here and now, day to day, uh, if we're looking for our lasting gain and significance there, we will find disappointment. As he's told us throughout the book, this life is vapor. It's vanity. It's a breath. Um, and it comes with no money-back guarantee. And what's true of life in general is also true of our livelihoods, the way that we make ends meet, uh, especially as we're still coming out of one of the worst recessions in recent American history. Uh, the news reports tell us that unemployment surged to 10% uh, just three years ago, and it's still hanging at right about 8 more than 3 million Americans have lost their homes to foreclosure since 2009. Student loan debt recently topped $1 trillion in this country, with one in five American households carrying some sort of student loan balance. Now, some of us don't need the news reports to tell us that information because we're living in that world. You know, the stack of unpaid bills reminds us of that uncertainty. The overdraft statement tells us about that. The meet and greet at the local job fair 
where we rub shoulders with 50 other people with our exact same skill set, all vying for the same three positions, that tells us the times are uncertain. So how do we think about that kind of uncertainty, that, that the risk that we face day in and day out in life as we think about money or our career, our livelihood in a world without guarantees? And how about other activities that God has called us to do, other risky things uh, that are part of walking with him? Well, Ecclesiastes was not lying back in chapter 1 when it told us that there's nothing new under the sun, not even economic uncertainty. And so this ancient text this morning is going to offer some surprisingly relevant and timely counsel for today. Uh, specifically that in the face of life's inconsistencies, God calls us to give generously, to work boldly, and to trust God with the results. So that's where this text is taking us. Let's pray and ask God to open our, our eyes and ears this morning. Lord, this is your word that we have opened, and that means your voice is the one that's speaking in it. That's the voice we want to hear, God. We want to hear what you have to say We pray that your spirit would speak to our hearts and not just help us listen, but help us live and obey and be changed by your spirit, by your grace, as we gaze upon you. So bless our time in this word and speak to our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes, we've been in this, if you're just visiting us, we've been in it for several months now, and it's touched on so many different aspects of our daily lives, uh, from knowledge and wisdom to money and wealth, uh, work and achievement, relationships, religion. And in chapter 11, he now turns to the question of business and economic livelihood, which is signaled here by the imagery of sowing and reaping and taking risks and prospering. That's the, the subject matter. But notice... How the preacher describes the, quote, economic climate, if you will. In these six verses, he highlights the uncertainty, the unpredictability, the absence of guarantee. Four times he points out there's something that we don't know about how we go about trying to to make a living. You don't know what disaster might happen. You don't know the work of God. You don't know which investment is going to prosper. And yet into this unpredictable scenario, uh, he offers three concrete instructions for what we've been describing over the last few weeks as true success. And those instructions are to give boldly in verses 1 and 2, to work boldly in 3 through 4, and to trust God boldly in verses 5 through 6. Now, a quick reminder about what true success means in Scripture. It does not always line up with how the world defines success and the categories that the world uses. Chapter 10, which we spent a couple of weeks in, had a lot to tell us about true success. And in those passages, we saw that it has far more to do with fearing God and being faithful to God than it does with uh, tangible results like money or power or prestige or or what have you. And we're going to see that again this morning, that this idea of being successful uh, before the Lord has much more to do with faithfulness to him than any dollar sign we might hang on it. 
But we begin with verses 1 and 2 and the command to give boldly. So give boldly. And if you look at verse 1, uh, if you're like me, you scratch your head the first time you read that, and probably the second and the third as well. That's a pretty obscure verse. Uh, look there with me. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. So what in the world is the preacher talking about there? Uh, you know, Casting our bread upon the waters is what we do when we feed ducks, and we usually don't want it back once it's all soggy and nasty. Well, there are two main ways that these verses have been understood or are commonly understood. The first is to see this imagery as referring to international trade. So casting your bread upon the waters is understood to be a metaphor for sending your merchandise, your livelihood, overseas with the expectation that a prophet will return to you after many days. This is, after all, what King Solomon himself did. We're told in 1 Kings 10 that how the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And if that's the sense of verse 1, then verse 2 would be suggesting the wisdom of diversifying one's investments uh, by using multiple ships for the merchandise. You know, give divide your portion among seven or eight in case one or two go down at sea. In other words, you know, as we say today, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Well, while that's a a surprisingly, in my mind, widely held interpretation, there is another understanding that I think makes better sense of the verse. And that's to see casting bread on the waters as a metaphor for giving generously to the poor. For giving generously to the poor. And the strength of that suggestion is that Ecclesiastes is not the only ancient uh, text that uses that metaphor in that way. Uh, there's an Egyptian proverb that says, do good, do a good deed and throw it into the flood. When it subsides, you will find it. Or similarly, an ancient Arabic proverb reads, do good, throw your bread on the waters, and one day you will be rewarded. So in other words, this is a call to give boldly to the poor. Give a portion to seven or eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth, and then to trust God with the reward. Uh, we see something similar in Proverbs 19.7. says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Or in Proverbs 22.9, Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. So it's a picture of giving boldly. Now, why in the world would generous giving be a wise response in uncertain economic times? You know, when, when things are tight, we tend to hold even tighter to them as opposed to, you know, giving freely of them. You know, we cling to whatever sense of control we can find. Giving boldly doesn't make a whole lot of sense in that scenario. It's kind of like the, you know, throwing bread in a river and expecting to find it a few days later and have it be worth something. It sounds pretty foolish. Now, He could be referring to the shrewdness of being generous to those in need now because you never know when the tables might turn and you might find yourself in need. Uh, Not unlike the uh, 
the shrewd manager in Jesus' parable in Luke 16. But I think far more likely, giving boldly in uncertain times is an unmistakable expression of our trust in God and of our reflection of his compassion toward us. So giving boldly to the poor does not come from sitting down and calculating a strategic return on your investment. Okay, where can I most likely find the best return? Giving to those who have nothing is not, that's, you're not going to come to that conclusion. We don't give because we think of what we're going to get out of it. We give, rather, because in hard times, people have needs, and the body of Christ is a family who shares those needs. We give because God is the one who's given to us everything that we have. It doesn't even belong to us in the first place. And we give because we trust God to be the one who's going to reward that generosity and faithfulness. Listen to the instructions that Jesus gave to a man hosting a party for the Pharisees to which Jesus was also invited. This is in Luke 14, uh, verses 12 to 14. Jesus says to him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So giving to the Lord... By giving to those in need is not a return that we always see in this life. But God in his grace rewards those who treasure him more than they treasure their stuff. Not because he has to. Not because our generosity somehow obligates him now uh, to, to give us something. Even less is this a means of manipulating some sort of greater material gain by giving. You know, somehow now God's going to reward us here and now, which is what some of the health and wealth preachers try and con us into thinking. Rather, God rewards our generosity simply because he loves us. Because he loves us. It's like watching your child share his lunch with someone who forgot theirs and saying, you know what? That was cool. Let's go out for ice cream afterwards. Not because your child deserved it, but because you love him. That's the picture of God rewarding our generosity. It's his love and his mercy. Maybe now, maybe materially, we don't know, but utterly and abundantly beyond all we can imagine in the new heavens and new earth. God loves us in that way. Now, I cannot tell you what this looks like for you, this idea of giving boldly to those in need. Um, But ask God to open your eyes, to see the needs that are before you, the people that you can come alongside of and and help in their need. Do you know a single mom who could use some babysitting help as she's trying to juggle two or three jobs and paying half of her wage to daycare? Do you know someone who's buried in bills right now and just need some guidance and maybe some relief and instruction to get back on their feet? Do you know someone who needs some gas money to get to work or or a family who needs new clothes for their kids for this fall? Ask God to open your eyes to see those needs that we might live as a family lives and that we might overflow the generosity 
that God has had on us. Now, of course, we need wisdom to know the best way to help someone need uh, someone in, in need. We, we want to come alongside in relief and, and in development and encouragement, not just enabling a situation. But don't let the need for discernment create a closed heart in you so that you're always wary of take, being taken advantage of and so that you're, you just close down and your eyes are shut. Ask God to open your eyes. Uh, learn about how to, how to do these kinds of things. You know, one of the courses being offered this fall uh, by Mike Swarin is on faith-based uh, personal finances. There's a lot of wisdom there for us personally, but also as we come alongside of others. Uh, but here's the question. Do I trust God enough as my provider that I can give generously to those in need, even in uncertain times? That's the question. And one of the best ways we can tell what we're trusting in and treasuring is how willingly and joyfully we part with our stuff. Uh, that will reveal our treasures. Jesus said in Matthew 6, uh, 19 through 21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So give boldly in uncertain times. And the second point comes in verses 3 through 4, and that's the call to work boldly. To work boldly. And let's look at those verses together. This is verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. If a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls... There it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Now, verse 3 begins with some pretty earth-shattering news. When clouds are full of water, they rain. When a tree falls down, it stays right where it fell. <laughs> Thank you, Captain Obvious. You know, well, what's the point of stating something so obvious here? You know, well, these may be obvious facts of nature, and they, which they are, but they're also quite powerful, quite unpredictable, and utterly beyond our control. And so if your livelihood depends on getting into the field and being able to sow seed without being taken out by a stray tree, or, or getting into the field to harvest without being drowned in a flood then there, these kinds of everyday, normal, course of nature type things can actually cause a great deal of anxiety and fear. And that's the point in verse 4. The one who sits and waits endlessly for the perfect business conditions, if you will, will never accomplish anything. What is needed is boldness in our work. Again, we want that ironclad guarantee. We want... We want the market to stabilize. We want to know before we begin that our labor is not in vain, whether it's a new business venture, whether it's some other task that God has called us to. We want guaranteed success, and so we obsess over the conditions. You know, And we sit there doing nothing out of fear of doing something and failing. That's the picture in verse 4. So if, if conditions are this unstable, and I don't know whether it's going to work... Why try? I don't want to risk it. 
We're just going to keep waiting instead. But here's the question. If that's the posture of my heart, fear of failure, who am I trusting in for success? Me. But what if my trust is in God instead? God calls us to action amid life's uncertainties. He doesn't call us to dig a hole and hide out till the storm blows over. He calls us to boldness, not fear. And boldness means taking risks. It may mean taking a risk in, in business or career. You know, the risk of applying for that promotion, even though it seems like a long shot. The risk of starting a new business. The risk of stepping away from a job and pursuing college or grad school or something like that. There's no guarantee that any of those things are actually going to work. But they might be wise things to do. Now, boldness is not the same thing as making rash and foolish decisions. We talked last week about the wisdom of thinking carefully about what God has given us to do. Um, Neither is boldness the same thing as being presumptuous. So, you know, it's not the self-confident attitude that says, all right, I'm going to make a plan, I'm going to take control, grab life by the horns, and I'm going to make things happen. You know, that's not what he's talking about here. You know, the book of James describes the foolishness of that kind of self-confident presumption in chapter 4. It says, come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So the difference between stepping out in boldness, taking a risk that way, and stepping out in presumption or arrogance is simply the object of our trust. The object of our trust. Presumption trusts in self. So my skill, my ingenuity, my creativity, my willpower, and if things go well, then my glory and my honor. But James reminds us what Ecclesiastes has been telling us all along. You are a mist, a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We don't have that much control. Boldness, true boldness, the kind of boldness that the preacher is talking about, puts confidence not in self, but in God, in his will, in his power, and therefore leaves the results in God's hand. And God calls us to live boldly in uncertain times, not just with regard to our livelihood, but in the advance of his kingdom as well. I want us to think about that for a minute. It takes a certain boldness to bring the Lord up in conversation with an unbelieving friend or family member. There's a risk involved in inviting your neighbors over for dinner. They might think you're weird. They might never want to talk to you again, whatever. You know, it takes boldness to step into the messiness of someone's broken life and walk with them in the muck, gently guiding them to the Lord. That takes boldness. 
There's no guarantee that any of them will ever become a Christian. Despite all of our efforts. But true boldness comes not from trusting in ourselves or our efforts, but in God. Uh, When Carissa was in high school, and I have her permission to tell this story, uh, she worked at a fast food restaurant, Italian restaurant called Fazoli's. And as far as she could tell, she was the only Christian uh, in working there. Uh, to put it mildly, she absolutely hated her job. It was, you know, she told me stories that she'd be mopping at night just crying over how miserable this job was. Her boss at the time was a young woman, probably in her mid-twenties, whose life had recently been turned upside down by an unplanned pregnancy. A single gal, uh, no plans to get married or anything. She's freaking out. Well, one day when Carissa was on break, her boss comes over and sits down with her to talk to her. And Carissa had been bold about her faith. She had been bold to speak into this woman's life. So she was thinking that she was about to lose her job for those things. And her boss instead asked her to tell her more about Jesus. And so she explained the gospel. The, you know, that Christ in his love died for our sins to cleanse us, to forgive us, to give us new life if we will believe in him. Well, nothing really changed in the woman. And after a few months, uh, Carissa took a different job and there was really no connection for years. Uh, till one day, uh, we're now married, uh, so this is five, six years later, we're walking into Target, and we run into the woman to find out that she'd become a Christian, that in the meantime, since Carissa had known her, she had survived cancer, and that she was uh, getting ready to marry a Christian man. And because we ran into her, we got to go to the wedding a few weeks later. Uh, which was fun. And during that wedding service, the pastor shared this woman's story where she recounted the boldness of a young employee at Fazoli's who took her faith serious and was bold enough to share the truth of Jesus with her. It was a turning point in her life. Now, I don't share that because my wife is awesome even though she is. I share it because Jesus is awesome. And he is worthy of our boldness. Because in His, it's his power that we depend on when we step out and we risk something amid life's uncertainties. Boldness comes not from trusting in ourselves, but in God. And that's where The last two verses of this section, uh, that's what they tell us. To trust God boldly in verses 5 and 6. Now these verses begin by reminding us again that we cannot control or predict how life goes under God. Verse 5. As you do not know the way that that the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So to illustrate his point, the preacher draws our attention to human conception, to the mysterious way that a human person is created in the womb, something that we cannot understand or control. Some translations see this as two uh, separate illustrations that 
As the NIV puts it, we do not know the path of the wind or how the body's formed in the womb. But the Hebrew word for wind is the same as spirit. And so the picture here is the joining of bone and spirit in the creation of a human person in the womb, which is one of the many places that Scripture reminds us that life begins at conception. But just as the beginning of life is shrouded in mystery for us and beyond our control, so is the way that God works out his plans. And that's his point here. We cannot control God or predict him, but we can trust him. We can trust him. We can trust him boldly and therefore work boldly. As verse 6 says, in the morning, sow your seed and at evening, withhold not your hand for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. We work boldly trusting in God. Though we can't always understand God's work, we can be confident that he is indeed working. He is indeed working. He is the one who, in verse 5, makes or does everything. This is his world. You know, Everything we have, everything we see is the fruit of his labor. That's a pretty powerful God when you think about it. This is his world. He made it according to his purposes, and he will be faithful to accomplish those purposes despite our sin, despite our weakness, despite the vapor that this world has become. And he has proven that to us in Christ, who lived faithfully before his father, who died willingly for us, by taking every sin, every stain, every reminder of the brokenness of this life onto himself on the cross, and then rising victoriously on the third day to give new life, to make things new. Jesus is our Savior. He is our King and our guide. And he will guide us through this uncertain world. So if you're here and you do not know Jesus then I urge you to stop clamoring for control, a control that you cannot find and you cannot sustain, and instead throw yourself in faith on the one who can and does control and predict everything. Trust in Jesus, new life in him, and live boldly for him. Do we really trust God boldly in these uncertain times do we trust him with our livelihood you know why is it easy sometimes to trust christ to secure our eternal place in heaven but then to to be racked with doubt every month on whether or not he can provide the rent do we trust god boldly with those kinds of things do we really believe that those are prayers that god wants to answer when we ask him for his help. Or we, we feel like it's too insignificant. It was my fault. I can't bother him with that or whatever. Do we trust God boldly with our livelihood? Do we trust God boldly with the mission he's given us as a church? Do we really believe that God wants to see men and women throughout New England turn away from their false gods of sex and power and money and whatever else they're looking for life in and 
to find the freedom, joy, and new life that is available only in Jesus. Do we really believe that Jesus' blood was enough to accomplish that? That his spirit is powerful enough to give new life to dead souls? If so, then why do we spend so much time waiting for better conditions? I'm just a little too busy right now. But when that, when things settle down, then I can, I can spend some time getting to know my neighbors and maybe share Jesus. This and this need to change at the church. And when that happens, then I can start telling people about Jesus and bring them here. When the conditions get better. You know, when, when my parents get through that problem, then I can talk about Christ. If we can clear this quarter and hopefully it's profitable, then maybe my boss will want to hear about Jesus. And we'll wait for better conditions. Oh, we of little faith. Oh, we of little faith. And I'm the chief among you. You've got to know that. You hired a coward for a pastor. I am too selfish. I am too in love with my own time and my own convenience to take the risk of laying my life down for Christ. I need the grace of God in Jesus just as much as the people I'm trying to share Christ with. And that's a need we never grow out of. That's a need we never grow out of. That's why boldness isn't about us. It's about Christ. It's about God. How bold is our faith? Are we only asking God to do things through us that we can pretty much manage on our own without Him? Or are we asking God to do things in and through Westgate that are utterly and entirely impossible unless he shows up? Are we willing to take risks as a church to reach the lost? To try some things differently, perhaps even to fail and then to have to try again? A couple of church planters in Great Britain put it this way. If we measure success in terms of our reputation with our peers, the numbers in our congregation, or the professionalism of our Sunday meetings, then we are going to be risk-averse. But if success is to be faithful to the gospel, then we will be, we must be creative for the sake of the gospel. Are we willing to trust God boldly as we seek to walk faithfully with Him. To give boldly, to work boldly, not just for our livelihood, but for the sake of His glory and His kingdom. May God give us the grace we need, the faith that we need to live boldly for Him. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we are a weak and a scared people, God. We are worried and a busy people. And yet you, in your abundant mercy, love us unconditionally. You lavish your delight and grace on us. Thank you that you're not waiting for us to get our act together. You're not waiting for us to uh, 
Um, You're not waiting for better conditions the way we often do. That you sent your son while we were still sinners to give his life for us. That's boldness. God, give us boldness to take you seriously, to take you at your word, and to live with faith, not just management or control. May we see Jesus freshly and see how beautiful and compelling he is to live with boldness. We ask these things in his name.